Good afternoon, and welcome to another presentation of the Fall Colloquia, brought to you by your School of Library and Information Science at San Jose State University. I am Dr. Anthony Bernier, and along with Dale David from our technical staff, we are producing this series of presentations to better connect our library community with the faculty and the school. Look for new colloquia presentations on the SLIS website at least every other week throughout the term, where you will also find a webcast archive of all of our previous presentations on the SLIS homepage. Find our website at slisweb.sjsu.edu. We also offer our colloquia as free podcasts. Users can either subscribe to the colloquia RSS feed or visit the SJSU SLIS portal in the iTunes Music Store. Details on how to do this can be found on the Fall 2007 Colloquia page. I'd like to make two promotional announcements. First, on behalf of the faculty, I would like to heartily invite you to attend our Lazaro Lecture in November, sponsored by the Institute for Scientific Information. This is our sixth annual lecture honoring Samuel Lazaro, librarian, administrator, and pioneer library, uh, in library automation. This year's speaker is noted essayist and humorist Will Manley. While you can find further details of the event on our SLIS homepage, the Lazaro Lecture takes place on Thursday, 29 November, from 7.45 to 9.30 p.m. in the Grand Ballroom of the Hotel St. Clair in beautiful downtown San Jose. Second, I would like to invite you to visit SLIS 21, the school-wide blog maintained by our Associate Director, Dr. Linda Main, on the school's homepage as well. SLIS 21 concentrates on school administration and development. You'll find new topics introduced each week, and you can find SLIS 21 also on the school's homepage. Today, it is my pleasure to introduce a good friend and youth advocate, Beth Galloway. Beth served for eight years as a professional librarian, earning her MLS from Simmons College in 1998, where she also serves currently as an adjunct lecturer. And she is a certified serving the underserved trainer for the Young Adult Library Services Association, YALSA. Last year, Library Journal named Beth a mover and shaker for her work advocating for games in libraries. She is currently a library trainer and consultant and under Neil Schumann, she is completing her forthcoming book, Game On, Gaming at the Library. Beth is very good uh, to accept our invitation today because she is out west from her home in New Hampshire conducting a series of trainings for the California State Library's Info People project. So on behalf of the faculty, please join with me in welcoming Beth Galloway. Thank you so much to Anthony for inviting me to come out here. This is my first time on the uh, San Jose State University campus, and it's beautiful. So thank you so much for having me. This um, slideshow that I have is part of a much longer workshop, and we only have an hour together today. So I will try not to let my New England roots show too much and talk really, really fast. <laughs> But I'll try to talk slowly so that you can understand me. I'm not going to get through all 90 slides that I have. I already know that. But what we will do is archive them on the web, the entire presentation, um, so that folks listening and playing along at home can have it. The focus of this morning's workshop is uh, gaming by the numbers. That does say numbers. This is an example of elite speak, which is something that gamers traditionally uh, use. And it's transposing traditional letters 
with numbers or symbols. My email address is there. I'm also happy to uh, send slides should anybody wish to see them. There it goes. So I would like for people in our studio today to feel free to ask questions um, when you have them and also to participate. I won't make you do introductions, um, but I am interested in a show of hands. Who here does play games of some kind? And every hand went up. The longer workshop, we uh, do this for the agenda, defining games, why games at the library in particular, who plays games, are there ways to create a gamer-friendly library, and how. Two ways to do that would be collecting games and hosting video game programs. And then we also encourage librarians to play some games themselves. So just to make sure that we're all on the same page and using the same vocabulary, what exactly is a game? It comes from a German word, gammen, which means fun or amusement. So technically, any activity that you're engaging in for fun or amusement could be considered a game, even if it doesn't have rules and objectives which is usually what people think of when we talk about games, something with rules and objectives. And a clear winner usually emerges. When we talk about video games, we're just talking about an electronic version of something that you're doing for fun and amusement. And usually, again, those rules and objectives come into play. Two examples of video games, and you can see a little bit, the, thank you, Anthony, the transition of a video game. We have two examples of tennis games here on the screen. Um, one is Pong. And usually I'll ask people to identify it for me and thus identify the oldest person in the room. Um, and then the newer one is simply um, a version of a tennis game. But you'll note that there's been huge change in the last 30 years with games. Going from monochrome to full color, from a flat 2D interface to a 3D one. And you can also see that on the top image, there is a ton of information to take in. Not just the score, like on the bottom image. Game components. You need something to play your game on. You need a screen or monitor so you can see your game. You need a controller of some kind because the player needs to drive the action of that game. You need a power source. We're talking about video games, which are electronic in nature. And finally, you need the game itself, which may be played on CD, a cartridge, or in a digital format. And these are just some examples of things that games might be played on. The first three images are of consoles. And the next one is a personal computer. You'll note that there are tons of vents and holes in that personal computer. That's a $3,200 machine from Alienware. And the holes are because it needs extreme ventilation because of the temperatures that the internal components get up to to run these games so that the play is seamless. You may be familiar with keyboards, mice, and joysticks as controllers, but game controllers today are moving toward a much more kinetic format, meaning you're actually picking up and interacting with that controller. For example, standing on a pad and dancing, waving your arms in front of a camera to drive the motion of the game with no handheld controller, or in the case of the new Nintendo Wii, holding a Wiimote that can be turned a variety of ways to act as a steering wheel, as a tennis racket, as a sword, or even as a fishing rod. Game screens. Your library might not have the gigantic plasma screen televisions. Maybe you've just got computer monitors. But most have some kind of an LCD projector. And as long as your game screen has red, white, and yellow rimmed holes in the back, you can plug a console into it to play your game. 
And depending on your budget, you can find a screen to fit your needs. There's lots of ways to play video games. Some of you might remember arcade games from 30 years ago where you were standing or sitting at a machine that just looked like a box. And again here, there's a movement toward kinetic games where you're sitting on something shaped like a motorcycle to ride it or standing on a dance platform to play. This is from an arcade in my hometown in Hampton, New Hampshire. It's called the Holodeck. And what you're looking at is a 360 degree screen. The player actually stands climbs up and sits inside of this ball and is completely immersed in that video game. Now, no libraries are probably going to purchase this. <laughs> but take a look at that image on your left. That looks much more like a traditional computer lab. The difference is, instead of monitors, we've got LCD projectors mounted on the ceiling projected onto the wall. People pay $5 an hour to sit at the holodeck and game together. And I would argue that libraries are set up to do exactly the kind of activity that they are charging for and that people are going to and paying money to do. And perhaps we need to think of ourselves more as a third place for this audience who we haven't traditionally served and give them something for free that they're willing to pay money for because they love to do it so much. Libraries on a budget might think about plug and play devices. Again, those RCA cables you plug directly into your screen and play. The game itself is packed into the joystick, whether it's shaped like a joystick device or shaped like a dance pad and you don't need any consoles to play. Most libraries probably don't have a budget for $3,200 gaming computers, but there are still a lot of games that you can play without spending a lot of money. One of the questions that I frequently get asked is what console do I buy so that I can do programming with games at my library? Or what console should I support if I'm thinking about circulating games at my library? You can turn to this source, videogamecharts.com or vgcharts.com. Um, they get information, research, statistics from all of the retailers out there so that they can publish on their website who is winning the console war in terms of sales. And you'll see that as of this morning, the Wii is winning with over 12 million units sold since last, I think it came out last fall. Xbox 360 is just starting to lag behind. It's the oldest of the next generation consoles. And PlayStation 3 is lagging with only, well, not quite 5 million units sold, possibly because of its hefty price tag. In terms of handheld devices, Nintendo is winning this war as well, outselling the PlayStation Portable two to one. A very easy program to have at your library would be to simply ask patrons to bring these portable handheld devices to the library for essentially what's a jam fest. Um, hang out and play together, swap games. One of the notable features of the Nintendo product is that it will recognize if somebody within 30 feet has the same device. And there are many games that can be shared. More and more gaming is going to this handheld method. It's portable, you're allowed to be mobile, and you have a competitor or just somebody to play with anywhere you go. In fact, mobile gaming is expected to quadruple to 11.2 billion users in the next three years. Some of you probably have cell phones with games on them. I don't know how closely you paid attention to the last cell phone you got. The one that I had most recently, I had hour-long demos of popular games. But if I wanted to play more after that first hour, I would have to purchase that game and download it right to my phone. 
Three years ago, it came preloaded with full-length versions of games, and I didn't have to do any extra purchasing. It was part of my cell phone package. So developers are absolutely recognizing the mobile platform is popular and that money is to be made um, in this venue. So why games at the library? I have a couple of different arguments. They're actually just like books, but they're another new format. When we're talking about adolescents, they meet developmental needs and build developmental assets of teenagers. There's some evidence to suggest they prepare youth for the business world. They absolutely involve learning principles, even ones that might look like pure entertainment on the surface. They reinforce new literacies. And finally, they're the medium of choice for the millennial generation. And I'll talk a little bit more about each of these. So games are like books. We're used to seeing new formats. I'm sure that there was an uproar when Pulp Fiction paperbacks were introduced to public libraries. You're going to put what next to Shakespeare? And then adding children's books, and then adding audio, records, tapes, CDs, adding video to libraries who are traditionally about books, adding the internet, and even more um, controversial, adding the internet in graphical format. We've been through the argument many times that libraries are not about books. They're about stories. They're about information. And they're about experiences. And games provide all of those, just like other new formats that we've become familiar with and begin collecting and doing programs around in the past. This is a, an image of a series called Dot Hack Sign. It's a popular uh, Japanese series. It's an anime program that spun off into a movie, that developed graphic novelizations, um, that developed fan fiction, and finally they came out with a game about doc, dot hack sign and its whole universe of characters and stories. And the interesting thing about this series is you have to consume it in a specific order for the entire oeuvre, if you will, to make sense. So things that you get out of reading the books may then be applied to playing the game. And if you see things out of order, it's not going to make as much sense. And I think that we're going to see more and more of this, of reading or consuming content across different formats. Today's teens are truly platform agnostic. Think about the popularity of Harry Potter. Sure, the books kicked it off, but then we had game spin-offs, we had the movie versions, and people could not wait to get enough more Harry Potter. And they started writing their own stories and making their own illustrations. Um, and posting fan fiction and fan art. And it's because they love the character no matter what format they can get it in. Gaming equals literacy. Some of you might have a youth service background. And you'll know that when you're working with emerging readers, one of the things that you do is point out environmental print. So just looking around this particular room, sure, we've got my slideshow. Um, but there's a room number. There's text hanging on the wall. There are posters. Maybe there's an exit sign. There's something about rules posted over there that I can't see. A mother sitting in a car with her young child pulls up to the stop sign and says, look, honey, there's the stop sign. Stop starts with an S. S can you say S? Look at the shape that it makes. And then when they get to the grocery store, they might walk through looking for the letter S. So environmental print is all around us in the real world. And it makes sense that in a gaming environment, there is environmental print as well. 
It's in the form of maps that need to be read and deciphered. It might be in the form of advertisements. If you're playing a racing game, that car might be plastered with logos. And as you're spinning around the track, there are billboards that need to be read. There is instruction embedded in the game. It might be text chat with a non-player character, somebody that you go, your character goes to in the game for information. It might be live chat. People more and more are playing with other individuals across the internet. So there's text chat going on as well. Things are labeled. There's quest logs that need to be read. There are statistics and numbers that need to be taken in and analyzed. In short, games are full of reading and deciphering symbols. There's reading and writing that's done about and around video games as well. Traditionally, the gamer does not pick up the instruction manual and read it from cover to cover. Instead, he or she opens it up, looks at the diagram of the controller so that they know which control controls perform which actions. And that's all they need. They launch into the game and go and learn as they go along. And they only turn back to those instruction manuals when they get stuck. Because they know if they sat down and read the manual from cover to cover, they wouldn't remember a third, a quarter of what they read. But if they go back and get that information just in time, right when they're ready to apply it, they're more likely to remember it and to internalize it and then be able to apply it when they next see it. They might go online for cheat codes. Some people are concerned at the idea of kids especially going online and finding cheats. Um, but cheat might be a wrong word for it. Often they're tips uh, or instructions. And they're often written by not the game company manufacturer, but by other players. Gamers are inherently heroic and they want to help other people. So they will write very detailed walkthroughs of how to navigate through a game space um, or how to perform certain actions within a game. There are forums where people will post frequently asked questions. And gamers who play together in groups, most popular with massively multiplayer online role-playing games, people form clans or tribes, like a family or a team, they will post websites about the activities within the game that their clan has performed. Constance Steinkohler, who has her PhD in cognition out at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, has done extensive research in EverQuest, Lineage, and now World of Warcraft, all role-playing games. And she says that the teens that they, she has talked to have said they spend four times as much time creating content for their games as they do actually playing. So in a five-hour gaming session, they spend four hours looking up things about the game, answering other people's questions about the game, maybe taking coding and changing it, so making a new sword or creating a potion to sell. Or if they're playing The Sims, changing the color of a couch and then sharing that out with the community for download or possibly purchase. They're posting on websites. They're posting on blogs. They're recording their gameplay, putting in dialogue and music, and creating short films more so than they're actually going through the motion of the game and playing it as it was intended to be played. Just like the rest of the web, gaming is going to content creation as well. Finally, there is chat in games. Does anybody know what WTS, Mage Weave Cloth 15G, means? Want to sell Mage Weave Cloth for 15 gold. So it's a sentence. And the interesting thing about this sentence is if you are a newbie, a new player, you might not realize that 15G is a ridiculous amount of money to pay for this item which can be picked up by slaying a very low-level character in World of Warcraft. So there's not only actually deciphering what the symbols mean, what want to sell, WTS, but there's also understanding the context 
of that particular sentence. It takes work. This is a page from the Wikipedia on elite speak, which is transliterations, changing letters to numbers or symbols. And it's just a way for gamers to create some kind of community, a community that's in the know and knows things that other people don't know. And there's an example of the word gamers spelled out in elite or elite. So they have created a whole new language. This isn't the death of grammar as we know it. Gaming and developmental needs. The National Middle School Association has determined seven things that they think that young adolescents, 10 to 14, need in their lives to grow up into happy, healthy, contributing members of adult society. I won't read them all to you, but I think many of them can be garnered from, gaining, from gaming. And I think the first six add up to the last one, which is positive identity. So kids who have friends of all ages or mentors of all ages who've learned how to figure out consequences of their actions, who have boundaries set and enforced, who have time to act out physically. They come to your public libraries after school after sitting for six hours in class. And of course, they're going to be rambunctious. They need creative expression. They need feelings of competence and achievement. And they need meaningful participation. And this is a big one. The Young Adult Library Services Association, I think their whole core today is teen participation. That it's not just enough to say to kids, so we're thinking of having a program, what do you want to do? Um, it's not just lip service. It's incorporating their suggestions and putting them in charge of it. And that's a scary thing. Um, librarians tend to be a little bit controlling, shall we say. Uh, and giving up that control can be really hard. Um, these needs fit in pretty well with the Search Institute's developmental assets list. And they're a separate research organization out in the Midwest. And they've established a list of 40 items in eight categories. Again, things that they think teens need to succeed. I think these two lists align pretty closely. So what I want to do is show a picture of teens playing games and ask what needs and assets are being met. Slide may be a little bit dark. This is an image from the Lexington, Massachusetts Public Library, the Cary Memorial Library. It's 10 o'clock on a Saturday morning, and you can't see the whole crowd in this shot. Um, you maybe see that there are eight kids who have gotten up early. There are about 20 in that room. And I would argue that Dance Dance Revolution, in particular, a game from Konami, meets all seven developmental needs of teenagers. The librarian is off camera in this picture, but she got up and played and danced with them. So we've got positive social interaction with people of all ages. It's pretty clear that they're with their peers as well. We've got structure and boundaries. They're following the rules of the game. In fact, we let them decide how they're going to play, how many mats they wanted. Were they going to make one line or four lines? Did they want to play on a competitive setting or a non-competitive setting? And we ran the program. No librarian stepped in to say, no, it's so-and-so's turn. Your turn is up. The kids totally managed that themselves. It's certainly physical activity. Dance Dance Revolution gets your heart rate up to 140 beats per minute, so it's aerobic activity. And depending on how intensely you're dancing, and your weight, it could burn 200 to 500 calories an hour. And it's fun. Creative expression. One argument might be that, well, they're just stepping on the arrows. How is that creative expression? 
Well, there's no rule that you have to step on the left arrow with your left foot. So you can get very creative with your dance steps. You might choose to use your elbow to hit some of those buttons, or to jump, or to spin, or to play on a completely different choreography mode. You dance the steps, the game saves what you do, and then your friends can play what you have choreographed. Dance Dance Revolution is one of the only games that you play where you get better every time you play. Your score just keeps going up, and that results in positive self-esteem. The meaningful participation piece is that this was not the idea of the librarians. It was the idea of the kids in the community who said, we want to do this. The second time that I showed up with my equipment, they said, no, no, we have our own. We would rather play on our metal pads. We would rather play with a different version of Dance Dance Revolution. Can we? And we said, sure. And we got out of the way and let them do it. And then the final thing is the positive identity. Again, getting better every time does magnificent things for your self-esteem. But then kids who might not be coming to the library and who are here for this program may identify themselves as gamers or as library users or as winners or as physically fit even because they're up and they're moving and they're getting some exercise. Gaming gets teens ready for the business world. John Beck and Mitchell Wade put together an excellent research project which they published in Got Game, where they asked people born before and people born after 1970 if they considered themselves more or less of these qualities as compared to their coworkers. And their research showed that gamers born post-1970 considered themselves to be more competitive, more social, more wired or connected, that constantly on, uh, more self-aware, more heroic, more of a multitasker, more of a global thinker, more collaborative, and more of a risk taker than their boomer age counterparts. And Beck and Wade make a leap and attribute these characteristics and the, the variants um, as people who play video games have more of them. So they're used to playing games in a group. If you've watched gamers in a room together, even if there's one controller, what happens is they pass the controller from person to person. And they recognize that you know, I might not be good at this part, but my friend Becky is, so I'm going to give her the controller, and she'll get us over the hurdle, and she'll either pass it back to me or onto somebody else. So they recognize that there are different tasks in the game and different people suited to different roles. And that's a management decision that some managers never, ever get. But because kids play socially and collaboratively, they get it. The competitive piece makes sense. Most games do have rules and objectives, and clear winners and losers emerge. The self-aware piece is really interesting to me. Uh, I like to say that gamers are self-centered. We're used to being the hero of the game. You are the protagonist. It's like reading a book, but you are really there. You're driving the narrative. You are driving the story. Um, and yes, it may make them selfish. It does result in a, I want it my way when I want it. You know, this is the reason that I think the net is 24-7 is and why we can go to pages like Amazon.com and sign in and get personalized recommendations and why I can go to MuggleNet and change the design of the page so that it has Harry instead of Dumbledore on the screen. It's all about me. And it does make you, to some degree, self-centered. But it also makes you incredibly self-aware and able to articulate your own wants and needs. The multitasking piece may be a bit of a misnomer. Really, gamers have continuous partial attention. They're switching back and forth from task to task very quickly. And it comes from watching a screen that's always changing. There was a study that came out that said teens who play video games are actually better drivers. 
than teens who do not because they're so used to switching their attention and looking for the thing that's important right now and that helps them pay attention, say, if a car suddenly comes out in traffic. The risk taking is also really interesting. I'm not going into all of these, but um, during the dot-com bust, people who played video games were very quick to pick themselves up, dust themselves off, and say, well, that was fun and interesting, and even though I lost a lot of money, I learned something, and I can apply that to whatever my next business venture is going to be. Boomers were much slower to find new jobs and much more likely to end up divorced than people who were not boomers and who grew up playing video games. And this is a fantastic book. I think the paperback version is called The Kids Are All Right. It's a very convincing argument of all the good things that video games can do. Another great resource is James Paul G's book, What Video Games Have to Teach Us About Learning and Literacy. And he identifies 32 different learning principles that are inherent in most video games. The one that catches my attention the most is probing cycles. And he's really talking about the scientific method. Again, gamers don't pick up and read the manual. They say, hmm, what's going to happen if I hit this button or talk to this character or go down this path? They form a hypothesis. Then they do an action. They perform an experiment. And then they evaluate what they've done so that they can make a better decision the next time. Sometimes it doesn't pan out the way they thought, but luckily they can just hit the reset button and start over with that experience of, well, okay, I lost, care, I lost points, I lost my character, I lost something, but I gained in knowledge and experience. So it was a rich, rewarding experience, and I can apply that new knowledge. Situated meaning is really just that just-in-time learning, that not reading the whole manual at once, but going back only when you need it. And finally, uh, I also want to point out the use of affinity groups. The idea that you might not know somebody in your close geographical proximity who has all the same interests that you do, whether that's a game or something else. Um, but gaming brings people together. It is a social activity, um, and people get something out of it. The new literacies. Um, David Warlock and Sarah Armstrong wrote an article for, I think it was Scholastic Administrator, that's now been published in Tech Learning about the new literacy. And it's this concept that it's not enough anymore to know how to read, write, and do arithmetic, but that today's students need a whole entirely different skill set, still related to letters and numbers to some degree. Kids today need to know how to find information, how to employ that information or apply that information how to re-express that information, and most importantly, perhaps, to us as librarians, how to do all of that in an ethical manner. That might be the one that they have the most trouble with. So exposing knowledge is about finding information, being able to understand and explain it and interpret it, regardless of the format. So it's not just about text anymore, but about video, about audio, about games, about multimedia. They need to understand how to evaluate it, organize it, determine the authority, determine the authenticity. And then they also need to know how to organize it. Some of you might have kids who come into your libraries and play RuneScape. And I show this slide to librarians and ask them, what kind of information do you see that you need to take in and analyze and maybe organize on this screen? This is a screenshot of RuneScape where we have a map up in the top right corner, an inventory underneath that a chat text box down to the bottom right, uh, and a menu bar at the very top that has things like the world map, not just the local map, a manual, and the rules. And just in looking at this, I see a picture of my character with a health bar over her head 
If you're not a gamer, you might not know that it's a good thing to have so much green showing in that particular bar. There's a lot of symbols as well as text that need to be interpreted. This is a fairly simple screen compared to World of Warcraft. We've got some of the same elements. Even the map, the inventory, and the chat text are in the same spot. Um, again, the slide may be a little bit dark. But we've got this character standing in the middle, and she's actually analyzing all of her armor. She's just been through battle, needs to know what can be upgraded, what can be replaced, and what has taken damage. So these numbers, some are red, some are green, those are significant numbers that you would have to read and interpret. All the way over to uh, the left is her quest log. There are 19 sheets out of 20 possible sheets. And you may not be able to tell, but there's an arrow. And it goes down pretty far. So there's actually a lot of reading. And it's not simply go to X location and kill 10 monsters. But there's a whole history and a background with hints and tips on how to get there and the best way to accomplish that job. At the very bottom, the chat text is also very interesting, too. You'll see some of the same um, codes or acronyms being used. There's four levels of incoming chat that need to be juggled while this player is in-game. We've got chat from the game server, chat from her clan or team, chat from people in close proximity, which is the idea that just like the people in this room can only hear me at the moment and the people next door can't, uh, it works with chat, too, so only a certain geographic location can see my text. Finally, she might be private messaging with any number of characters at the same time. So there's tons and tons of information, and this continuous partial attention thing is determining when do I need to look at the map? When do I need to open the inventory? When do I need to pay attention to which specific chat channels that might have pertinent information for me right now? The employing information is really the math piece, computation, measurement, analysis, and application. And one of my favorite examples is uh, the lemonade stand game, which some of you might have played in your youth. It's basically a business simulation. You put in some numbers, how many lemons you've bought, how much ice you've bought, how much sugar you've bought, how, much, how many cups you've bought. Um, click OK. The goal is to make a profit, depending on the number of people that walk by your stand, and of all arbitrary things that you have no control over, the weather. If it's hotter, you're going to sell more lemonade, and you can jack your price up. So understanding sort of the mechanics of what makes a successful business, how do you get, get a profit, how do you plan in advance when the weather is going to be rainy, what happens, do the lemons go bad? Um, pattern recognition is also important in employing information, and a great game to train your brain in pattern recognition is setgame, setgame.com. Uh, and that's the next example on the slide. Expressing ideas compellingly, but it's not all about writing the five-paragraph argument paper anymore. Sure, mechanics matter. Today's teens may need to be trained in when to use informal communication and when to use formal. You don't use chat slang in your college essay. But creativity and efficiency are just as highly rated as the mechanics and as the content. And it's nice to have a slick looking presentation, but if the content isn't there to back it up, it's not really worth anything. Finally, today's teens need to be fluent, not just in text, but in multimedia. And I think we in libraries can provide not only access to tools that help them create their own images, create their own audio podcast, create their own machinima videos, but we also need to be able to give them support 
as they work their way through using this stuff. They don't all know it inherently or intuitively, and it is not just enough to allow them access to tools and software. Some of the ways that they may be already expressing their ideas compellingly are through fan fiction, through a short film called Machinima, through creating web comics, by contributing to web forums, which are really bulletin boards. Do you remember bulletin boards? Technology is still alive and well. Uh, and possibly through creating clan websites and blogs. So they're already out there doing this stuff in droves. This is a screenshot from fanfiction.net, the video game section. And the numbers represent the number of stories that have been posted to this website in this category. So and these are all game titles. Uh, one of the Harvest Moon has a ton. Resident Evil has a ton, 3,000. Um, you can't quite see because of the way I did the shot, but Pac-Man is on here. Uh, Asteroids is on here. So what kind of fan fiction do you write about Pac-Man <laughs> or about Asteroids? I don't know, but they're doing it. And we could harness that interest by hosting a fan fiction contest at our libraries and encouraging students to do their fan fiction, fan, fan fiction or their modifying or their content creation in an ethical manner. So only writing stories about characters um, who, in the end user license agreement, it says that it's OK to do that. For example, again, Harry Potter. J.K. Rowling has said that it's fine for people to write fan fiction about Harry and Hermione and Ron. But you can't resell it and make money on it. And she would prefer that you not put them in X-rated situations. So if you follow those two rules, yes, you may create your own stories and post them for other people to see, to read, to rate, to review, and to comment on. The same is true of video games. They all have different end-user license agreements. Nobody ever reads them. We just click through, click OK, because we want to get to the game. And encouraging kids to take a look at them, maybe by creating a quiz about the end-user license agreement of the game that they're playing, could be a way to do that. Or hosting a fan fiction content contest and making it clear that they can't submit stories that have licensed characters that you don't have permission to write about. And the same is true of video. We've now come to the interactive part of today's session. And I will encourage our studio audience, if they are comfortable, to call out some of the answers. Uh, and if not, I'll put in a little pause so that you at home can pencil down um, your best guess. The Entertainment Software Association every year publishes the top 10 facts, and then some, about the gaming industry. And that's where some of these are from. So the average age of the gamer, any guesses? I already saw some of the answers, yeah. so We have some people who saw it ahead of time. Um, it's 33 and rising, which would indicate that people much younger than 33 are playing games, and people much older than 33 are playing video games. Gaming is something that is ubiquitous. Everybody is doing it. How old is Atari? About the same age. They just never stop playing. The average gamer has been gaming for over 12 years. Back to teens. What percentage of teens report playing games online? If you said 81%, you were correct. This is from the Pew Internet and American Life Project's Teens and Technology Report from 2005. They have not done one recently that just focuses on gaming. So if I come to you and say there's something that 81% of your user base is doing, I would hope you would say, oh, I need to pay attention to that. What percent of women over age 18 play games? 
they say at the Entertainment Association, only 28%. Compare that to the percent of boys age 6 to 17 who play games, only 21%. This is the most questionable statistic. And my thought is that this was a telephone survey where they probably only talked to parents who probably said, oh, my son doesn't do that. And it'll be interesting to see how this changes for next year. The Entertainment Software Association likes to make the statement that there are more middle-aged women playing video games than there are boys age 6 to 17. People over 50 are playing games. What percent of people over 50 play games? Nearly a quarter. 24%. And in fact, a survey at Senior.net revealed that playing games online was the number three activity engaged in by their retired constituency. Checking email and looking at photos of their grandchildren were numbers one and two. What percent of gamers overall are women? More than you might think. 38%. However, this is down from last year when it was 45%. What percentage of gamers play on handheld devices? This might include the PlayStation Portable, the Nintendo DS, mobile phones. 32%, and this is up from 11% the year before. So this is really a growing area. There is a study that came out last year that showed that surgeons, especially laparoscopic surgeons, who played video games were much more successful than their non-gaming counterparts at surgery. What percent fewer mistakes do surgeons who play video games make? That's an awkwardly worded question. 37%. Additionally, they are speedier than their non-gaming counterparts. They made 27% fewer mistakes. What does this mean for hospitals? It means less complications for the patients faster recovery times, and less money being spent on post-op health care. Gaming saves money. Speaking of money, how much money did the computer industry, computer and video game industry make in 2006? There is just 6% growth from 2005, but 7.6 billion, that's with a B, billion dollars, and that's just on the game sales. Remember, consoles don't make any money for the console creators and designers and producers. They only make money selling games. The total take for the video game industry was closer to nearly 12 billion for last year. There was a big deal about this two years ago because the video game industry made more money than the film industry. And folks were afraid perhaps movies are dead. But the truth is, it doesn't cost as much yet to go to the movies as it does to buy a video game. $12 ticket versus a $35 to $60 video game. Plus, you don't have to buy the projector when you go to the movies. With video games, you do need to purchase a console to play them. Finally, what percentage of games sold in 2005, the most recent statistic that I have, um, were rated M for mature? This is the equivalent of an R rating for a film. Only 15%. And I would argue that those 15% of the games got 85% of the media's attention. Most games are rated E for everyone, E for everyone 10 and up, or T for teen. And in fact, 
E for Everyone is the most popular prevalent video game rating. Let's turn to public libraries. Scott Nicholson, who teaches over at, the, uh, at Syracuse University in New York, just published a white paper called The Role of Gaming in Libraries, Taking the Pulse, where he examined what libraries were doing with all kinds of games, not just video games, but board games, card games, role-playing games, dice games. What percentage of public libraries allow patrons to play games on the library's computers? It's 82%. We're looking at the darker blue portion. So eight out of every 10 libraries do allow public access computing computers to access games at the library. What percentage of public libraries circulate video games? A much smaller percentage. Only about 30%, but still more than I had expected. And finally, what percentage of public libraries host video game programs? 13%. It's, um, I think, 43% of libraries actually host programs. Chess is the most popular game program for libraries to host. Um, and here we're just talking about the video games. So some ways that libraries can tie literacy to gaming. That you'll have to explore on your own. Um, I will leave the rest of the slides up. It does go into things like using gaming for readers advisory, um, how to do gaming collection development, whether you're talking about linking just to websites where patrons can go in and play games if you're one of those 8 and 10 libraries, um, and offering gaming programs, whether tournaments, free play, etc.